Please be seated. So the sermon title today is The Return of Our King. I badly wanted it to make it The Return of The King, but Facebook already gets angry at us for, you know, putting other people's stuff up in our service anyways, so I didn't want to tempt fate. You know, copyright violations and all that. Uh, but The Return of the King is a movie, and before that was a book written by J.R.R. Tolkien, in which a kingdom, long bereft of its ruler, awaits the return of their king. Uh, this legendary figure who would come to destroy it, the uh, people of Gondor's enemies and who brings healing in his hands. Now, for an author who swore up and down that he hated allegory, so much of what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote can be applied to our hopes as well for our returning king. You see, tomorrow is Palm Sunday, and it is the day um, that we celebrate the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with people about him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, this messianic figure, the Son of David, the King, the rightful ruler of Israel. As they throw palm fronds in front of him and place their cloaks on the road so that this figure of this kingly figure need not even tread on the commonplace stones and dirt of the road. And uh, little did they know, though, the true meaning of what Jesus was about to do. Because as they saw this king, and truly Jesus is our king and their king, as he saw their king riding in a, on a donkey, even though it was an animal of peace, not associated with war, they knew that this figure is saying something about himself so much deeper than what meets the surface. So would you please turn in your, books, in your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. And as you turn, I will uh, ask, just ask the Lord to come and join us and teach us himself from his own word. Dear God, here we are again, your people. We pray that you have been blessed and, and that you have been, uh, you found pleasure just in the songs of your people as we're gathered here today. And uh, this is your word that we're about to open a word that grows us and strengthens us like bread to our bodies. And, um, but we know that it only does so under your presence and under the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that this is what happens today as we explore the prophecies about your coming. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So we get a little bit of a better understanding why it was that the people of Israel and Jerusalem, as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, so in looking for a military figure, in someone to deliver them from the Roman oppression and, and to bring about a free, independent state of Israel. They were right in expecting such a thing because God promised it. Now, little did they know that God is going to be true to his promises. But in his first coming, Jesus had something much more foundational than the political freeing of a nation that he needed to accomplish. And so my message to you tonight is simple. Jesus has come and he is coming back. That's a very simple message, but it is one that needs to soak into our hearts and minds, and we need to understand what that means. We need to be prepared because when Jesus comes again, it will have consequences for, because the world will never be the same. It will, be, it will have deep and lasting consequences. So first of all, at the return of Jesus, what we shall see is that he will come and he will establish peace for Israel and he will establish peace for the nation. So as, when he comes, he will establish peace. And this in, in verse 9 through 10. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this part has already been accomplished in his, in, as we read the, the passages in Matthew and Luke, we see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And he rides on, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He rides in, he's surrounded by people who welcome him with open arms. And they expect him to establish peace for Israel right then and there. He, they expect him to establish peace for the nations. But note, the first time Jesus came, he came to free us from the tyranny of sin. In his first coming, Jesus' desire and design was to give us the most fundamental freedom that any man could ever experience, any man or woman, the freedom to have a relationship with God again. You see, as we are, we don't have the freedom to have a relationship with God. We are enslaved. Our forefather, Adam, yielded his stewardship of the earth. He, he gave up the, the stewardship that the Lord entrusted to him to rule over the earth. He yielded it up and rather rebelled against the Lord. And so ever since then, ever since that day, mankind has been enslaved to our sinful nature, to, uh, to, to desire everything except for God himself. We have been enslaved to a broken world. A broken world where natural catastrophes like tornadoes, like what we experienced last night, natural catastrophes like tornadoes, earthquakes if you're out on the, on the west coast, hurricanes if you're from the south, on the south coast, cancer, disease, pain, suffering. We are enslaved to all these things. And so before Jesus could come and bring peace to the nations, he had a much more fundamental task to do. He needed to give us the freedom to have a relationship with God again. And so he came peacefully without conquest this time, except for the conquest of our hearts. But as we and so the question is okay so why is this prophecy surrounded by so many of these this conquest language if Jesus is coming here was about his peaceful conquest of our hearts because within prophecy the idea is that the events that are far off and the events that are closer to hand are lined up has anyone ever uh, aimed a rifle before or looked through a telescope the idea, when you aim a rifle, the front sight and the back sight are lined up so that the front sight sits between the, back, the, the peaks of the back sight. And so it looks like they are together. It looks like it's one thing, and it's smooth across the top. That's how you know you have a, sh a straight shot. 
prophecy is the same way. The things that are farther off and the things that are closer to hand are conflated. Because the idea that the prophet is trying to, to, get, to pass on to the people he listen, he's talking to is not so much about an accurate prediction of how the future is supposed to go. Rather, he is saying something about the character of God. And so for the prophet Zechariah, as he's ministering to the people of Israel who are home from the exile, they have settled in, they've built their second temple, but it's small. The glory is of the second temple is not the same as the first. They came back with Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, but he's kind of disappeared. Over time, he fades away, and so they are left without a, without a Davidic king. And so they, they're in the land, but it doesn't feel like it's finished. It doesn't feel like the land has been restored like they thought it was. And so they're wondering, God, what's going on? What's going to happen? We're, we're here, but we don't see you working to restore everything like you said you would. And so the prophet Zechariah comes and he says, yes, God will restore his people and he will restore his, the descendant of David, the king. He will restore. And this is what it's going to look like. Because our, because our God is a faithful God. Even if his timeline isn't what we pictured or imagine, he will see all things come to completion for our good and for his glory. And so when Messiah comes again, he will restore peace to the nations. Briefly, I will mention uh, that he comes and he will bring peace to Israel itself. His intention is to cut off all these instruments of war. The chariots, the war horse, and the battle bow are the three most important aspects of warfare at that time. That's like saying that he, you, he would cut off from the United States our tanks, our air force, and our navy. All the things that give military power. The, the mo like the big stuff that actually wins battles. This is the big picture that he casts for Israel. I will come and establish peace for you, and not only for you, but for all of the nations of the world. And then the next few verses, it talks about how he must come and conquer the world in order to establish the peace. So in the next section, starting in verse 11, we see that not only has he come to be a Messiah of peace, but he has come specifically to protect the nation of Israel. Not only militarily, but he's come again at their revival. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit and return Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double 
So within this passage, we see, think, we see a prophecy where it talks about, uh, where it is a little bit ambiguous. The waterless pit was this place of hopelessness, despair. It was associated with the grave. Think about the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel where there is no life. It was the place where Joseph, the son of Jacob's son, was cast by his brothers. Uh, this place of, of hopelessness and despair is the place where Jeremiah, the prophet, was cast when people were so tired of listening to him preach repentance. They threw him into a place of hope, of being trapped, dry, and hopeless. And so this people, what, what the, is, it's revealed, is trapped in a place of hopelessness. Even though they're back in the promised land, Still, so many Jewish people are dispersed throughout the nations and haven't come back yet. And even the people in Israel feel hopeless because their their, their, the descendant of King David is missing. And because the temple just doesn't feel right. It's small and it lacks the glory of God that was there in the latter days. And so God promises that for the sake of the blood of his covenant, now that has two meanings as we look at this. As in the covenant with Moses, there was the blood of the lamb that was shed for the sins of Israel. But as we look at this prophecy that's talking about the latter days when Jesus returns, we can also understand this to mean that the blood of the covenant, which it was at first symbolized by the blood of lambs, was only ever meant to remind the people of Israel that a better sacrifice had to come. It was meant to stand in, the, in that place and be a reminder that Jesus had to come and shed his blood as the better sacrifice. And so as we stand here and we read this, this prophecy, we see that the blood of the covenant, which for a while was symbolized by lambs, is totally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so for the sake of his sacrifice, of the, on behalf of his people, and all people of the world, he is going to come back. And he is going to, again, restore the people of Israel into a relationship with him. Elsewhere in, Zachar in, uh, in the prophets, and I believe it's elsewhere in Zechariah, the people of Israel are, Israel are in this time of great tribulation and trial. They are surrounded by Gog and Magog, the enemies of the people of Israel. They are surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and they are are about to destroy it. It talks about a day of great, of great challenge, of great turmoil, of weeping, of, of pain and assault upon them. And it's prophesied that in that day when they, when they understand, when it finally sinks in, when they look on Him whom they have pierced 
and weep as for, the, as for an only son who is, has died, they, then in that day they will call upon the name of the Lord. Elsewhere, it is said that in one day, the entire land of Israel will turn to the Lord and all their iniquity will be removed from them. I know that's a lot, but I'm trying to cram in a lot of end times prophecy into one sermon to give you an understanding of what's happening here. And in that day, he descends upon the Mount of Olives and all his holy ones with him and delivers Jerusalem from their enemies. This is why it talks about his... uh, how he, um, why, uh, this is why it talks about Greece here. Because Gog and Magog is uh, thought to, to be a people from the nation of Anatolia, from the area of Anatolia, modern day Turkey. But at that time, the, the coastlands of Anatolia, of modern day Turkey, was owned and ruled by Greece. And specifically, the nation of Athens, the, the city-state of Athens. And so when the big idea here, the second big idea I give for you tonight is that when Messiah returns, he will be the protector of Israel. That he will set his people free from hopelessness. He will set them free from despair. And he tells them to return to their stronghold God himself, throughout the Psalms, describes himself as their stronghold, their uh, refuge, their fortress, the one in whom they can come for refuge. And that in that day he will restore to them double. What, what it precisely that means... I would probably venture to say that Israel will be twice the size that it was at that point. But we aren't going to know for sure until it arrives. Thirdly, the third point I want to leave you with tonight is that when the Lord comes, He will come as a conqueror. Not just to protect Israel and that's enough. No, He is coming for all the world. He is coming to establish peace in all the world and establish His reign over all the earth. A reign that is His by right. Do you remember last week we talked about how Christ is this firstborn of all creation and all the world is His inheritance? Well, in this passage He comes and claims it. He says, I have bent Judah as my bow and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and will wield you like the sword. Then the Lord will appear over him, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound forth the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day their Lord, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Great grain shall 
uh, make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. In the preceding verses, we talked about how all these instruments of power will be cut off from Israel. And that's true. Because when the Lord has interceded on His people's behalf and has Himself gone out to war on their behalf, they have been powerless. If you think about in the Old Testament, when the people were stuck between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea, when they were powerless, God intervened, led them through, and destroyed the Egyptian army. In the book of Judges, in, with Gideon, God reduced this vast army that Gideon had down to a few hundred people to go against thousands because he was determined to show that he himself was Israel's Savior. And on and on it goes throughout the history of Israel. God has intervened in the most amazing ways when they were powerless and helpless. And so he, will, he himself will go forth with them. He will destroy Israel's enemies, bring peace to the world, and usher in a time of great blessedness. In 17, it will be a time of abundance of grain, that makes the young men flourish and new wine the young women. It's, okay, so it's not about the grain and the wine. It's about demonstrating it's a time of prosperity and a time of joy. So as I finish up this sermon, why does this matter? I've, you've said tonight, Pastor Gabe, Israel, Israel, Israel. We're not Israelites. We're not Jewish. Why does this matter to us? It matters because it's important to know that God is faithful, even when we aren't. This prophecy exists, and it is clear that it's not about us as the church. And right now, it's about a nation that is in rebellion to Him. Well, church, let me tell you, it is good to know that regardless of how unfaithful we are to, to Him, God is still faithful in His promises to us. 2nd,ly it's important to know that God's not done with Israel. As, a, as believers, we ought to be concerned about the welfare of the nation because God is still concerned for His people Israel. To pray for their peace, to pray for their welfare, and to kind of keep in mind when we go to the ballot box and look at politicians we're looking for, you know, Israel's pretty important to God. Maybe I should vote for someone who's going to be pro-Israel. I'm just going to leave that one there for you to think on. But I would say even more important than when you're in the ballot box is when you consider uh, the when you consider uh, 
just how important it is to know that Jesus is coming back. Because when he comes back, it's not going to be gentle and lowly like he was last time. To his people, yes. But the very reason why Jesus came humble and mounted on a donkey to be crucified, dead and buried and then risen again is because he is determined He is determined that none should perish but have eternal life because when He comes back, it will be in the fierceness of His wrath. It will be to come and establish His kingdom. We we cannot divorce the wrath of God from His goodness. He he is a God of justice. And He is a a King who, who is being spurned by the nations right now. And so as we read this and see that he is determined to come back, and it's not going to be pleasant for everybody else. For the Jewish people who will turn and follow him, who who is going to be his nation, and who as a nation are turning to him, it will be a wonderful experience to see their Messiah return. But for everyone else, not so much. And, And so as we look at this, we need to understand Our time is running short. We are supposed to live as if this happens tomorrow. And there are so many people out there who have never heard of Jesus before. Or they've heard some warped version of Jesus and a warped version of the gospel. Because they grew up in a a legalistic church or a permissive church where nothing's wrong and you can do whatever you want, or a Jesus who is cruel and mean and hard, or they might have heard of a Jesus who really doesn't care. So few few people know who Jesus really is, and He is calling us to go and share the gospel, the good news of the crucified Savior who is risen from the grave alive and share that with all we know everyone we know you don't have to get a soapbox heaven knows i never do but think about who the people are in your life that the lord has uniquely placed if you just ask him to make it clear to you who it is you're supposed to share that gospel with. He will meet you halfway. With that thought, let us close in prayer. God, this is your word. And it says you're coming back. And so we believe that you will, because we believe that you are a God who is true to his promises, who will make all things right and establish uh, the people of Israel once more. And we can't wait for that to happen. But Lord, as, as, as we go about life waiting for your return, would you please show us Would you please show us who you have uniquely placed in our lives so that we can share the gospel? And would you please 
make it abundantly clear to us your timing in our witness so that we can build relationships and keep trust and so that we can offer as many people as possible a chance at eternal life. We pray this in your name. Amen.